Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in this week. Um, I've got some exciting news. My book called The Plant Hunter is available for pre-order. It's a book about adventure, scientific discovery, medicine, and so much more. To learn more about the book or order a copy, head to my website at CassandraQuave.com. I also have a special offer available now for anyone who places a pre-order. I have book plates that I will personally sign and mail to you only for U.S. addresses. Um, more info on how to get your personalized book plates to stick into your book when it arrives are available at CassandraQuave.com and that's C-A-S-S-A-N-D-R-A-Q-U-A-V-E.com. You can also sign up to my author newsletter to ensure that you don't miss any cool book news and offers. Great, so let's jump into today. I am super excited to dive into our subject. We're going to be talking about cocktails and spirits and sustainability. So it's a great combination. Cheers to that. I'm really excited to have Shanna Farrell as our guest. She's the author of a new book entitled A Good Drink in Pursuit of Sustainable Spirit. Let me back up. She is the author of a new book entitled A Good Drink in Pursuit of Sustainable Spirits. Shanna is also an interviewer at UC Berkeley's Oral History Center, where she works on a wide variety of projects and specializes in drink, cultural, and environmental history. She's the author of Bay Area and her writing has appeared in Imbibe Magazine, Life and Time, Punch, and the San Francisco Chronicle. She holds master's degrees from both New York University and Columbia University. Welcome to the show, Shanna. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I guess to just to, to set up the stage, what, what can you tell us about what got you interested in this, these two topics of sustainability and, and beverages? How do those come together? Yeah, absolutely. So I had been in the service industry for about 15 years. Um, I was working as a server in college. And then when I went to grad school, I started bartending in New York City. Um, and so I was doing environmental history. I was kind of my first master's was interdisciplinary. It was kind of a, a create your own adventure. And I uh, was studying water pollution and uh, how people were affected in different ways by uh, the the Hudson River being a, a super fun site. And all the while I was bartending and I was looking at different spirits on the back bar. And there was one distillery who w had set up shop along the banks of the Hudson River. And on that was a beautiful bottle on that, uh, the bottle, it said 100% New York state produced grain. And I was really taken by that because I had never seen anything like that unless it was agave and there's 100% agave um, or Blue Weber on tequila, but uh, with with whiskey, that wasn't really the case. Uh, often we don't know where those things come from. So for uh, long story short, when I was um, doing interviews for my my research, I ended up interviewing the, the founding distiller at that place and talked to them about how they had created a direct relationship with farmers. They had kind of cut out the distribution, the packing shed in the middle, and I didn't even know that was possible. And so from there, this whole thing was born about thinking of sourcing ingredients and then also from the bar side, uh, the water waste, since water pollution was my, my topic of study, uh, and then also... Um, composting. I had worked for the Department of Sanitation in New York City and the recycling division, and we were rolling out a composting program. And uh, so all these things kind of came together. And um, yeah, here we are. <laughs> Great. 
Well, one of the things that I think is interesting is we've seen this emergence of attention to farm to table type cuisine. And when we think of farm to table, it's often restricted to just food. But what about beverages? Are there is there a pathway for farm to table beverages? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and it's one that I definitely explore in the book. Uh, One thing I started to notice when I moved from New York to the Bay Area was on menus at restaurants, especially ones that were kind of labeled as farm to table, there was always a list of purveyors on the bottom of a menu. You know, where did the produce come from? Where was the meat from? But there was always this disconnect between the drinks on the menu. Uh, The same principles didn't apply. And so I started to think about, you know, why does that disconnect exist? And why don't we treat spirits in the same way we do food? And so I started to dig into the topic. And um, I think one of the big reasons is that alcohol is regulated differently. It's not regulated by the FDA. It's actually regulated by the TTB, which is a, a more of a, a the tax and trade bureau instead of the Food and Drug Administration. So I think that, yeah, those set up some of the divides there. Um, the alcohol is sub- subject to a list called generally recognized as safe, which is under the FDA. So there is one provision there. Uh, but there are things on on that list where, you know, you can include red dye number 40, or there can be high fructose corn syrup in that. But because it's regulated by the TTB, you don't have to have a list of ingredients on a bottle like you do on a pack of Skittles or something. Uh, So I think that that kind of divides that a little bit. Um, There's also the model that the business models that come in. Um, A lot of distilleries who practice eco-friendly methods didn't always want to put that front and center because there was this idea that sustainability and luxury couldn't coexist. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that furthered the the divide. And then also I think there's a, because it's not like wine where we don't, we don't necessarily know where the the grain is coming from. It could come from another state or a distiller might not even know where in the U S it's coming from. You can't like visit a farm necessarily and say like, oh, this is where the grain comes from. So I think that that the the lack of transparency in the food chain is also kind of sets that up. Uh, but I do think that there, the more that people start to ask questions about where things are coming from, or if you're um, a liquor store or you're a beverage director or something, you could ask a distributor, you know, do you know more about where this place is getting their grain from? And and the more that those questions get asked, I think there's more accountability. And then there can be more thought placed on the distiller about like, oh, we have to be transparent about where things are coming from. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, and this is all about like the sense of place for our foods. But I'm also thinking, you know, when we talk about farm to table, we also get into how it's grown. Is it grown organically? Is it grown with with certain types of pesticides? But I, I don't recall seeing much information like that on some of our spirits. I mean, do spirits contain those those bits of information? And no, and I think that goes back to the way it's regulated because they don't necessarily have to disclose that information. I think we're seeing more and more distillers who are doing that. And especially there's the the first in the book, the first chapter focuses on a distillery in Charleston, South Carolina called Highwire. And for their one of their bourbons, their Jimmy Red Corn bourbon, they use uh, like a land race heirloom varietal of corn. 
and that's on the label, but that's the choice that they've made. And I, I'm finding that more and more distillers, if they're using non-GMO grains, um, or if it's something like that distillery in New York, where it's 100% from one place, they're electing to put that on the label. So um, yeah, I think that's starting to change a little bit, but uh, that, that also means that you have to know where it's coming from to put that on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's really, that's a great point. Um, well, going back to consumers, do you, what, what do you think consumers would be surprised about to find in, in their beverages? Are there any things that, that would maybe shock us even? Yeah, I think, um, there's, there's quite a few things. So, um, additives are ingredients that have been maybe shipped around the planet or things like 18 year old plants that end up in your bottle of mezcal. Um, the, uh, with, in terms of additives, I mentioned before red dye number 40. So it's a food coloring, um, or if you're drinking some type of like fruit flavored liqueur, chances are that that fruit did not, they're not using the essence of that fruit. They're actually using something that was derived in a lab. So Mm. it's a synthetical synthetic ingredient. And that doesn't necessarily have to be listed on the bottle because it's on that generally recognized as safe list. And so I think that, you know, you can do for, for certain brands, like if it's a bright red color spirit, it's probably not going to be naturally dyed, though there are some great alternatives uh, that are dyed naturally with, with a type of beetle. Uh, but you can Google what are the ingredients in here? And you can find that, but it's unfortunately the onus is on the consumer to do that. So I think that that's kind of surprising to people that those additives can be there. Um, and the high fructose corn syrup and all the things that come along with high fructose corn syrup, that's usually for texture to make a drink thicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I do think with when we're thinking about carbon footprint and climate change and the impact that the food system has on our, our global system, um, having ingredients for gin, like a botanical that's grown in one part of the world and it's shipped across the world to be used in a product in the middle of the country or something like that. So the, and that can apply to a number of different botanicals. It's maybe not just one, it's like 30 that come from different places. And so I think that the, the impact there is, is a lot greater than we think it is. Mm-hmm. And then the other one on a, on a happy note, <laughs> not just all doom and gloom, um, something like Mezcal, some of those agaves take, you know, 13, 15, 18 years to grow. And so those are, are those plants have a long, long life. And I think it's really cool when distillers there are trying to capture the essence of the story of that agave and putting the essence of that into the bottle. And uh, when you're drinking it, you're really getting that sense of place. And so I think that's, that's a fun, surprising one. The plants can be a lot older than we think they are. That's really cool. Yeah. I want to, I want to dig into a couple of the things you mentioned going back to the corn syrup. So when I think of high fructose corn syrup in cocktails, my mind immediately goes to mixers. Are you saying that they're also used in the spirits themselves or is it primarily, I mean, where do we find these things? And so where do we know to look out basically? Yeah, it is primarily the mixers, the liqueurs. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a big thing. But mm-hmm. when you're thinking about cocktails that are often used in there, so, um, you know, one of the ingredients in a Negroni usually has the thickening agent in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, a, and it is a lot of the liqueurs, usually the spirits 
you know, with, with certain types of, of tequila, if it's not a hundred percent agave, uh, they can, you can add things like corn, you can add things like sugar, you can add a bunch of things. Those are called mixtos. And so, um, that's usually not on the bottle. Usually on the bottle is the 100%. Um, and so those things can go in there and, and we don't necessarily know, but, uh, with other base spirits, it's usually just the, the grain that goes in there. Um, but it's always good to ask. I mean, some rums do use uh, caramel for flavor coloring, or if if there's a, some brand wants the appearance of age after it's been sitting around for a couple of years, they will add some some coloring to that. So that's something to be aware of as well. Yeah. So it's not necessarily getting it from aging in a barrel, but from something being added to it. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, and I also wanted to touch on your discussion of gin. I think. What's really fascinating about gin, uh, it is such a botanical beverage. And of course, juniper is the core ingredient, right, for flavoring. And we have junipers found across the globe. But you mentioned and you touched on these other botanicals. There's lots of different types of gin that are flavored uniquely um, with different botanicals. And the sustainability of some of these can be quite challenging, especially when they're, you know, if you have a, if you have a gin situated in a certain place, um, you know, that place may not be able to support <laughs> the level of, of collection, especially of wild plants for that particular flavor. Um, what, what else have you learned about gin in your, in your research? Yeah, I think that there's, uh, it's, gin's a really interesting one, uh, because it has to have the, uh, juniper in there to be technically qualified as gin, mm -hmm. but then there's a bunch of other botanicals that can be added. And I think that the, uh, Thing that I found most interesting is that there are distilleries who can use locally grown botanicals so they don't have to be reaching mm -hmm. across the globe to get something that they think would be good. You know, it's this mm -hmm. is the traditional style of gin, and so I have to include this, but really incorporating that sense of place. And then also, if it's local, there can be more of a connection between this, this distiller and whoever is growing those botanicals so they know how they're being grown they know about scale mm -hmm. like are we taxing this too much if the foraging is part of the the scope of what they're doing they can kind of know okay will we forge this area this time we're going to go over here foraging isn't always sustainable though I mean I think it's mm -hmm. one of these like hip cool topics in cocktails is like this is a, a thing that we foraged but if everyone is foraging then it's yeah going to throw the balance of the ecosystem off. And so I think that these are conversations that, that distillers are starting to have about what is what works in this area may not in this area. So I think that, that that's a really cool thing. Um, another thing just um, not, it's related to the botanicals, but about the distilling end. The, the distillery that I feature in the gin and vodka chapter is the Leopold Brothers in Colorado, and they practice fractional distilling where they don't throw all the botanicals in the still at once. They distill each botanical to get it's the maximum flavor out of it, and then they blend it together. And I think that that just makes such a, a bright, rich gin with so much flavor. And um, they're using local ingredients as well. So you're really getting a sense of Colorado in that bottle. And um, it's really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I'll have to check that one out. <laughs> Well, this and this leads in beautifully to my next question, and that's, you know, how are small businesses, everyone from small businesses to bartenders and farmers helping to pave the way um, for sustainable spirits? 
Yeah, I think in in terms of the bar, those are are sort of the ambassadors. Those are the the people who are really important because they serve as the gateway between the spirits and the consumers. Mm-hmm. And they because they're making cocktails, they have a really good sense of what will pair well with the spirit. How do we showcase this this drink? or the spirit and the the best drink possible. Um, And so I definitely think that for bartenders, there's a lot of things that they can do. And that's, you know, if they have purchasing power to be asking the distributors, how is this distillery functioning? What do you know about them? Are they calling themselves green and maybe just throwing up solar panels on the ceiling or on the roof? Or are they thinking about how they're cleaning their stills or where they're sourcing their ingredients. And so the more questions that get asked, first of all, you have more product knowledge so you can sell that drink to your customers better. But you can also say, you know what, I actually don't want that spirit because it doesn't follow the principles that I'm interested in for my particular bar. Um, And then I also think that they have the power to uh, someone, if a consumer comes in and maybe they're interested in sustainable spirits, they can have a conversation like, well, we don't actually carry this product, but have you tried this one? And I can make you a drink and this kind of thing. And then in terms of the waste stream, they also have power in in that way as well. So, um, you know, thinking about their water usage or if they're composting, uh, what kind of garnishes they're using, because that's pretty wasteful as well. Um, this is not a super popular opinion, but sometimes I advocate for not using garnishes and drinks. They're really pretty, but you know, if you're, if, if a min is maybe a poor example, cause it's a weed and it grows in abundance. But, um, you know, if you're, you're, you have a, a bunch of mint and you're only using one piece cause it's the most green and then you're throwing out the rest that does contribute to the, the waste stream. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think that the, the bartenders play a really important role, um, and then in terms of, of consumers, I think it's just a matter of getting interested in these things and maybe starting to think about spirits in the way they would food. And so mm-hmm. if they go to a liquor store, you know, asking the sellers there, like, you know, I'm interested in a locally sourced um, vodka or whiskey or something like that and seeing what that liquor store might know about how that thing is made, maybe going home and doing some research on it. And then I think being open-minded to, uh, alternatives. So if you're finding that one drink has red food dye number 40, and you'd like to drink something that's been dyed naturally with a beetle, um, knowing what to ask for. Uh, there's a bunch of alternatives out there. So uh, being open-minded to trying it, even though it might not have the same taste, but yeah. That's great. It's great. Well, I mean, here's a very basic question that, you know, some of our listeners might have, and it is how, what, what really determines whether or not something is sustainable or not. We've talked a lot about local, but what are, what are, what are the kinds of questions that they should be asking of their bartenders or their um, local um, liquor, liquor stores? Yeah, it's so that I think gets a little bit more complicated. And I think with the, that piece really goes back to the farmers and the way things are being grown. And then um, having the distillery be interested in sourcing from a place that practices crop rotation mm-hmm. that uses organic practices. I don't think, I think some people are starting to think about regenerative farming, but it isn't really that big in distilling quite yet because it is such on a a smaller scale right now. And a lot of these distilleries need huge scale. Um, So, or it's like 
creating that direct relationship with a farmer. So if you ask for something that's organic, can I have organic grown corn or something like that? The, the, the farm might make those changes. Um, I think, you know, knowing how somebody is using water, is, is the distiller aware of how much water they're using? Are they not? Um, maybe is it a B Corp distillery? There is one B Corp distillery that I feature in the book. And I think that they provide a lot of, um, transparency and are very involved in, in what's going on. And so I think, you know, asking if a consumer knows that this distillery, there's only a handful of B Corp distilleries around the world, but if they're asking, I'm sorry, what is a B Corp distillery? Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a, like a B Corp certified business where they have to, the business has to show all of their accountability, whether that's environmental, social, I think there's three uh, tiers that are involved, but it's like a pretty holistic view of what's happening. Uh, what's the impact essentially all ways around of the business. And the B Corp distillery that I feature in the book is Montagna and they're also in Colorado and they had to really chart how much of everything they're using, how much water, uh, what's the impact of that, what's the energy that's going out, um, that kind of thing. And so they have to do reports every year or every few years or something like that. And, um, you know, they can put on their, bo their bottles like this is we're certified B Corp. So it's kind of the, the, instead of just saying we're certified organic, it's like the step above that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's great. Um, well, okay. Well, this goes into the next question that I had and that's around scale. So when we talk about kind of smaller boutique production lines versus some of these larger lines that that require just large volume, not only of the botanicals, the grains, but also of water. Um, can this be done sustainably on a large scale? I, I think it can. <laughs> um, I think there's there's a that's a, a really that's the hard question, because a lot of these places that are creating models are doing something on a small scale where they they can have direct relationships with a handful of farmers or, you know, they can source things locally. But if you're a huge company that distributes all over the world, it's a lot harder to do. Um, and there are a lot of trade-offs that you have to make. Um, so it's really thinking about how to balance the environment and the production side, uh, be care being careful not to over, over harvest certain ingredients, thinking about the impact that might have on the ecosystem. Um, I think infrastructure is a really big thing. Uh, do you need more space? Do you need more ingredients? Do you need more um, energy to be running the stills and that kind of thing? Are you, are you running your operation for 12 hours or is it a 24 hour thing? Um, there, I think a lot of that comes down to investment, to being able to, to think about how to create what you're doing on a small scale and thinking about if you're going to scale up, like really what's feasible for you. Um, that I think, yeah, it's the, that's the, the big question. There's, there's one distillery that um, I talk about in the book as an example of scale, which is Maker's Mark. And that was a really surprising one to me about how much thought they give to the sustainability side. It's not something that they have been sharing as part of their story, but they have a few people on their team. Their whole job is to protect the, the, like the watershed, the local environment. Wow. They think about the logging and the, mm -hmm. the deforestation that deforestation that goes into producing the barrels. 
Um, and so, you know, to have somebody on staff who, whose job is to think about that is a really interesting thing. Um, and they also have own, I think they have a, on their property is a 101 acre watershed and they use, they own a hundred of those acres so they can be stewards of the land and protect, you know, thinking about not even the next five years, but the next 20, the next 50, the next 100. And because they do own that, uh, and they, they do have like outside investment, they're owned by a large parent company. They have the money and the infrastructure to be able to do that. So, you know, some places don't want to relinquish control and don't want to sell to a larger company. Uh, but that also means that it can be harder to start thinking about some of these sustainability issues like water usage because you're so used to just being trying to keep your business afloat. So it, it's pretty complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think you bring up some really good points, though, around scale and scales of economy, but also, you know, other ingredients that go into the making of spirits. I mean, we haven't touched on this much, but I'm thinking about the barrels. There are certain types of, of wood that have to be used in making different spirits. And um, a few years ago, I had a chance to visit a place where they actually repair and they, they kind of re, remold these barrels together and are reused in different types of spirits. And um, that's just a whole other piece to sustainability. I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually one that I don't hear people talking about very often. And I think because mm -hmm. that really happens in a particular part of the country, I mean, it's, it's a big thing in the South. Um, and it's also a big thing in Europe. Uh, but it's, it's not necessarily something, you know, they're not harvesting redwood trees in California to make barrels. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think because it kind of happens in a small little area, um, it's interesting, but I do think it's it's super important because part of the thing that makes bourbon is it has to be new oak. Yeah. Um, so it's just you're constantly milling and creating new barrels. Um, there is a it's an interesting kind of sub economy that's come out of that that where uh, new barrels that are used are sold to other places that aren't making bourbon in the same way, don't have the same rules that govern the system. So they can be repurposed, but then barrels only have a certain amount of life that they, they can only be used a certain amount of time before they really start to break down. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think the added part to that, and regardless of what spirit you're making, whether it's new oak or old oak or something like that, is how are you cleaning that barrel? Are you, you what kind of cleaners are you using? Are you trying to use the, um, the byproduct of distilling that has, that, you know, has like, high proof alcohol where you can clean that's a disinfected disinfectant or are you using something that you're buying from somewhere else to clean I mean I think that that's a big part of it too and that's where a lot of the water usage comes in because of the cleaning process so yeah I think they, yeah I think I think I remember with some types of whiskey I think they even like burn the inside of it like they char it mm -hmm. inside it's this whole process that's really interesting but yeah, I think the, the key here is that making spirits isn't just about that core grain. I mean, if it's aged, it has to age in something. <laughs> and and for those that are flavored, like the gins with those different botanicals, there's lots of different ingredients we don't necessarily always think of when it when it comes to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the last question I want to um, ask on, on behalf of the foodie pharmacology audience is kind of what can they do as consumers um, to ensure the availability of sustainable um, spirits where, wherever they live, like, do you have any tips to share with them of, of actions they could take? 
Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things thinking a little bit about like what's your favorite spirit and maybe doing a Google search about what are the ingredients that go into this? How is it made? And then, you know, depending, I think being informed is great. I hate to just put the the burden on the consumer, but um, you know, just to I I would say just to get interested and ask questions and become a little bit more informed so you can decide what your line is. Um, do you feel strongly enough about this to switch out your favorite product and try something new? Um, I think going into a liquor store and asking those questions um, can be useful. And the more that people ask for things, the more that they will stock mm -hmm. it. I would hesitate to go ask your bartender, your local bartender, you know, if you're, if you're having, um, like a whiskey sour or something like, how is this grain sourced in this, this well whiskey? <laughs> I would caution against doing that. I don't know that that is going to be something bartenders are familiar with. Um, and then yeah. that could be an awkward situation. Um, but if you are, if you are finding like, Hey, I really love this gin from the Leopold brothers. And you know that that's made in a sustainable way. Can you go into your, your local bar and say, Hey, do you guys have any of the Leopold brothers? So instead of asking questions about what they have, ask for something that they, uh, a spirit that you like. Um, great. Yeah, that's great. And they can learn about that spirit and others in your new book, A Good Drink in Pursuit of Sustainable Spirits. And, and where else can I send them for um, more information on, on your book and work? Yeah, my website is Shanna-Farrell. It's my first name, dash last name, dot com. And then you can also find me on both Twitter and Instagram at at Shanna underscore Farrell uh, for both of those. So it's my first name underscore last name. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much, Shanna. This is really interesting. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Appreciate great. it. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded on Skype. You can find this episode and all of our others on our website at foodiepharmacology.com or on Apple Podcasts. You can also find um, the full video versions of this episode and others on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. And I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for their support of the show. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. Um, it's a lot of fun to continue bringing this show to you. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.